Chapter 31 Part 5 of Struggles and Triumphs or Forty Years' Recollections of P. T. Barnum Written by himself This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P. T. Barnum Chapter 31 The Art of Money-Getting Part 5 Don't blab. Some men have a foolish habit of telling their business secrets. If they make money, they like to tell their neighbors how it was done. Nothing is gained by this, and oftentimes much is lost. Say nothing about your profits, your hopes, your expectations, your intentions. And this should apply to letters as well as to conversation. Goethe makes Mephistopheles say, Never write a letter, nor destroy one. Businessmen must write letters, but they should be careful what they put in them. If you are losing money, be specially cautious and not tell of it, or you will lose your reputation. Preserve your integrity. It is more precious than diamonds or rubies. The old miser said to his sons, Get money. Get it honestly if you can, but get money. This advice was not only atrociously wicked, but it was the very essence of stupidity. It was as much as to say, if you find it difficult to obtain money honestly, you can easily get it dishonestly. Get it in that way. Poor fool not to know that the most difficult thing in life is to make money dishonestly, not to know that our prisons are full of men who attempted to follow this advice, not to understand that no man can be dishonest without soon being found out, and that when his lack of principle is discovered, nearly every avenue to success is closed against him forever. The public very properly shun all whose integrity is doubted. No matter how polite and pleasant and accommodating a man may be, none of us dare to deal with him if we suspect false weights and measures. Strict honesty not only lies at the foundation of all success in life, financially, but in every other respect. Uncompromising integrity of character is invaluable. It secures to its possessor a peace and joy which cannot be attained without it, which no amount of money or houses and lands can purchase. A man who is known to be strictly honest may be ever so poor, but he has the purses of all the community at his disposal. For all know that if he promises to return what he borrows, he will never disappoint them. As a mere matter of selfishness, therefore, if a man had no higher motive for being honest, all will find that the maxim of Dr. Franklin can never fail to be true, that honesty is the best policy. To get rich is not always equivalent to being successful. There are many rich, poor men. While there are many others, honest and devout men and women, who have never possessed so much money as some rich persons squander in a week, but who are nevertheless really richer and happier than any man can ever be while he is a transgressor of the highest laws of his being. The inordinate love of money, no doubt, may be and is the root of all evil, but money itself, when properly used, is not only a handy thing to have in the house, but affords the gratification of blessing our race by enabling its possessor to enlarge the scope of human happiness and human influence. The desire for wealth is nearly universal, and none can say it is not laudable, 
provided the possessor of it accepts its responsibilities and uses it as a friend to humanity. The history of money-getting, which is commerce, is a history of civilization, and wherever trade has flourished most, there, too, have art and science produced the noblest fruits. In fact, as a general thing, money-getters are the benefactors of our race. To them, in great measure, we are indebted for our institutions of learning and of art, our academics, colleges, and churches. It is no argument against the desire for or the possession of wealth to say that there are sometimes misers who hoard money only for the sake of hoarding, and who have no higher aspiration than to grasp everything which comes within their reach. As we have sometimes hypocrites in religion and demagogues in politics, so there are occasionally misers among money-getters. These, however, are only exceptions to the general rule. But when in this country we find such a nuisance and stumbling block as a miser, we remember with gratitude that in America we have no laws of primogeniture, and that in the due course of nature the time will come when the hoarded dust will be scattered for the benefit of mankind. To all men and women, therefore, do I conscientiously say, make money honestly, and not otherwise. For Shakespeare has truly said, he that wants money, means and content, is without three good friends. Nearly every paper in London had something to say about my lecture, and in almost every instance the matter and manner of the lecturer were unqualifiedly approved. Indeed, the profusion of praise quite overwhelmed me. The London Times, December 30, 1858, concluded a half-column criticism with the following paragraph. We are bound to admit that Mr. Barnum is one of the most entertaining lecturers that has ever addressed an audience on a theme universally intelligible. The appearance of Mr. Barnum, it should be added, has nothing of the charlatan about it, but is that of the thoroughly respectable man of business, and he has at command a fund of dry humor that convulses everybody with laughter, while he himself remains perfectly serious. A sonorous voice and an admirably clear delivery complete his qualifications as a lecturer, in which capacity he is no humbug, either in a higher or lower sense of the word. The London Morning Post, The Advertiser, The Chronicle, The Telegraph, The Herald, The News, The Globe, The Sun, and other lesser journals of the same date all contained lengthy and favorable notices and criticisms of my lecture. My own lavish advertisements were as nothing to the notoriety which the London newspaper voluntarily and editorially gave to my new enterprise. The weekly and literary papers followed in the train and even Punch, which had already done so much to keep Tom Thumb before the public, gave me a half-page notice, with an illustration, and thereafter favored me with frequent paragraphs. The city thus prepared the provinces to give me a cordial reception. During the year 1859, I delivered this lecture nearly one hundred times in different parts of England, returning occasionally to London to repeat it to fresh audiences, and always with pecuniary success. Every provincial paper had something to say about Barnum and the art of money-getting, and I was never more pleasantly or profusely advertised. The tour, too, made me acquainted with many new people and added fresh and fast friends to my continually increasing list. My lecturing season is among my most grateful memories of England. Remembering my experiences some years before, with General Tom Thumb at Oxford and Cambridge, and the fondness of the undergraduates for practical joking, 
I was quite prepared when I made up my mind to visit those two cities, to take any quantity of chaff and lampooning which the university boys might choose to bring. I was sure of a full house in each city, and as I was anxious to earn all the money I could, so as to hasten my deliverance from financial difficulties, I fully resolved to put up with whatever offered. Indeed, I rather liked the idea of an episode in a steady run of praise which had followed my lecture everywhere, and I felt, too, in the coming encounter that I might give quite as much as I was compelled to take. I commenced at Cambridge, and, as I expected, to an overflowing house, largely composed of undergraduates. Soon after I began to speak, one of the young men called out, "'Where is Joyce Heth?' to which I very coolly replied, "'Young gentlemen, please to restrain yourself till the conclusion of the lecture, when I shall take great delight in affording you, or any others of her posterity, all the information I possess concerning your deceased relative.' This reply turned the laugh against the youthful and anxious inquirer, and had the effect of keeping other students quiet for half an hour. Thereafter, questions of a similar character were occasionally propounded, but, as each inquirer generally received a prompt Rolland for his Oliver, there was far less interruption than I had anticipated. The proceeds of the evening were more than one hundred pounds sterling, an important addition to my treasury at that time. At the close of the lecture, several students invited me to a sumptuous dinner where I met, among other undergraduates, a nephew of Lord Macaulay, the historian. This young gentleman insisted upon my breakfasting with him at his rooms next morning, but as I was anxious to take an early train for London, I only called to leave my card, and after his jip had given me a strong cup of coffee, I hastened away, leaving the young Macaulay, whom I did not wish to disturb, fast asleep in bed. At Oxford the large hall was filled half an hour before the time announced for the lecture to begin and the sale of tickets was stopped. I then stepped upon the platform and said, Ladies and gentlemen, as every seat is occupied and the ticket office is closed, I propose to proceed with my lecture now, and not keep you waiting till the advertised hour. Good for you, old Barnum, said one. Time is money, said another. Nothing like economy, came from a third, and other remarks and exclamations followed which excited much laughter in the audience. Holding up my hand as a signal that I was anxious to say something so soon as silence should be restored, I thus addressed my audience. Young gentlemen, I have a word or two to say, in order that we may have a thorough understanding between ourselves at the outset. I see symptoms of a pretty jolly time here this evening, and you have paid me liberally for the single hour of my time which is at your service. I am an old traveler and an old showman, and I like to please my patrons. Now, it is quite immaterial to me. You may furnish the entertainment for the hour, or I will endeavor to do so, or we will take any portions of the time by turns, you supplying a part of the amusement, and I a part. As we say sometimes in America, you pays your money, and you takes your choice. My auditors were in the best of humor from the beginning, and my frankness pleased them. "'Good for you, old Barnum!' cried their leader. And I went on with my lecture some fifteen minutes, when a voice called out, "'Come, old chap, you must be tired by this time. Hold up now till we sing Yankee Doodle!' Whereupon they all joined in that pleasing air with a vigor which showed they had thoroughly prepared themselves for the occasion. And meanwhile I took a chair and sat down to show them that I was quite satisfied with their manner of passing the time. When the song was concluded, the leader of the party said, 
Now, Mr. Barnum, you may go ahead again. I looked at my watch and quietly remarked, Oh, there is time for lots of fun yet. We have nearly forty minutes of the hour remaining. And I proceeded with my lecture, or rather, a lecture, for I began to adapt my remarks to the audience and the occasion. At intervals of ten minutes or so came interruptions which I, as my audience saw, fully enjoyed as much as the house did. When this miscellaneous entertainment was concluded, and I stopped short at the end of the hour, crowds of the young men pressed forward to shake hands with me, declaring they had a jolly good time, while the leader said, Stay with us a week, Barnum, and we will dine you, wine you, and give you full houses every night. But I was announced to lecture in London the next morning, and I could not accept the pressing invitation, though I would gladly have stayed through the week. They asked me all sorts of questions about America, the museum, my various shows and successes, and expressed the hope that I would come out of my clock troubles all right. At least a score of them pressed me to breakfast with them the next morning, but I declined, till one young gentleman put it on this purely personal ground. My dear sir, you must breakfast with me. I have almost split my throat in screaming here tonight, and it is only fair that you should repay me by coming to see me in the morning. This appeal was irresistible, and at the appointed time I met him and half a dozen of his friends at the table, and we spent a very pleasant hour together. They complimented me on the tact and equanimity I had exhibited the previous evening, but I replied, Oh, I was quite inclined to have you enjoy your fun, and came fully prepared for it. But they liked better, they said, to get the party angry. A fortnight before, they told me, my friend Howard Paul had left them in disgust, because they insisted upon smoking while his wife was on the stage, adding that the entertainment was excellent, and that Howard Paul could have made a thousand pounds if he had not let his anger drive him away. My newfound friends parted with me at the railway station, heartily urging me to come again and my ticket seller returned a hundred and sixty-nine pounds as the immediate result of an evening's good-natured fun with the Oxford boys. After delivering my lecture many times in different places, a prominent publishing house in London offered me twelve hundred pounds, six thousand dollars, for the copyright. This offer I declined, not that I thought the lecture worth more money, but because I had engaged to deliver it in several towns and cities and I thought the publication would be detrimental to the public delivery of my lecture. It was a source of very considerable emolument to me, bringing in much money, which went towards the redemption of my pecuniary obligations, so that the lecture itself was an admirable illustration of the art of money-getting. End of chapter 31, part 5 Recording by Jared Hind, Springfield, Missouri